I'd like to begin this lecture today by watching an entire Samuel Beckett play with you. It's called Breath, and here it is. Breath was first performed in 1969, and let me just read for you the entire script. Curtain. Faint light on stage, littered with miscellaneous rubbish. Hold for about five seconds. Faint, brief cry, and immediately inspiration, that's inspiration in the sense of breathing in, and slow increase of light, together reaching maximum in about 10 seconds. Silence and hold for about five seconds. Expiration, in the sense of breathing out, because also the word has a sense of dying. Expiration and slow decrease of light, together reaching minimum in about 10 seconds and immediately cry as before. Silence, and hold for about five seconds. Rubbish, no verticals, all scattered and lying. Cry, instant of recorded vagitus. Important that two cries be identical, switching on and off, strictly synchronizing light and breath. Breath, amplified recording. Maximum light, not bright. If zero is dark and 10 is bright, light should move from three to about six and back. Welcome to Literary Modernism and welcome to the work of Samuel Beckett. I was looking over my notes from the version of this lecture that I gave in 2019, and I began like this. I said, it's incredibly important to understand the sociocultural context of the 1930s and 40s when we're coming to understand the relation of Beckett to, um, to literary modernism. And, and then I went on and said, it's incredibly important to understand that we've not lived through two world wars, uh, that we've not lived uh, through a huge financial crisis, and that we haven't lived uh, through a pandemic uh, that has taken away uh, a significant percentage of the population. And all of those factors are important in understanding modernism and the way that Samuel Beckett relates to it. Well, in the intervening year, 
Uh, we find ourselves on the cusp of what is almost certainly going to be the worst financial crisis in all of our lives. And we find ourselves in the middle of living through a pandemic uh, of the magnitude of the 1918-1919 Spanish flu. My only hope is that if I ever give this lecture again, they remain the only two of those three factors that we have in common with the period in which we're discussing. But it is incredibly important to understand the, the social context into which Beckett is writing because his writing is acutely aware of its times. And if we're not acutely aware of those times, then his writing may seem unnecessary or even pretentious to us, and I don't want us to make that mistake. So let me begin with a scene-setting quotation. Uh, Crap was first performed in 1958, so we're after the Second World War. Um, most of the modernist texts that we've been looking at were post-First World War, but not post-Second, not post-Holocaust, not post-Hitler, uh, but Beckett is. And this is what Gontarski says about him. The impact of World War II on human consciousness is still being assessed. But it was clear by 1945 that whatever vestiges of cultural assumptions survived the First World War, whatever shards of humanism persisted, they were obliterated by images from the liberated Auschwitz, Dachau, Buchenwald, and by the obscenely aesthetic mushroom clouds hanging over Hiroshima and Nagasaki, irradiating civilians. Language itself seemed to fail before such grotesqueries. Not even the denotative precision of numbers could communicate the horrors. Thus, more than a war ended in 1945, and philosophers like Theodore Adorno would even proclaim, at least for a time, that poetry, or more broadly, the idea of art itself, after Auschwitz, was obscene. So then how do you write after Auschwitz? How do you write after the death of over six million Jews, gypsies and homosexuals in the gas chambers uh, of Poland and elsewhere? Uh, well, as I suggested in the opening lecture, in this series, one thing that you can't do is just carry on writing as if nothing had happened, carry on with the same old, comfortable, predictable plots uh, and characterizations uh, as before. Uh, to do so would be to write in a vacuum, to write outside the sociocultural context uh, in which one's living, and that is not what literature does. So Beckett comes after the Second World War there's also a certain sense in which he comes after, or at least on the limit of, or, or at the point of exhaustion of modernism itself. And that's why we're studying him at the end uh, of this unit on literary modernism. Uh, listen to how Mayhew puts it, the, the culmination and virtual death of modernism in the later texts of Samuel Beckett, who writes with an acute consciousness of being at the end rather than at the beginning of the modernist movement. Now, of course, what, what didn't happen is that one morning, say in the late 1940s, early 1950s, uh, people woke up, woke up, opened their curtains, uh, and uh, were startled by the fact that uh, modernism 
uh, by all appearances, has suddenly disappeared. And here we are, lo and behold, in the postmodern period. And everybody hurriedly scurried away to work out how you do irony and pastiche. Movements, as, as we're discovering painfully week by week, uh, movements like modernism don't happen like that. They're not crisp like that. But there is a sense in which it is useful and valid to position Beckett at the end of something. Uh, this is not an end that transitions neatly from modernism to something else. It's it's more of a of an exhaustion, of a, of a refusal of the themes of modernism to go away, but also the impossibility of doing anything new or fresh or shocking with them anymore. Uh, listen to how Michael Wharton puts it in his uh, essay in the Cambridge Companion to Beckett. In the context of 20th century theatre, he writes, Beckett's first plays mark the transition from modernism with its preoccupation with self-reflection to postmodernism, with its insistence on pastiche, irony and fragmentation. Instead of following the tradition which demands that a play have an exposition, a climax and a denouement, Beckett's plays have a cyclical structure, which might indeed be better described as a diminishing spiral. They present images of entropy, in which the world and the people in it are slowly but inexorably running down, in the sense that a clock would run down. In this spiral descending towards a final closure that can never be found in the Beckettian universe, the characters take refuge in repetition, repeating their own actions and words, and often those of others, in order to pass the time. Now, of course, repetition is an important theme, isn't it, in Beckett's Crap's Last Tape, that the repetition itself of the, the hearing back a recording of oneself, the cyclical repetition of the movement of the tape, all instantiate these themes that Wharton is picking up on. If you've read around Crap's Last Tape, or if you've studied Samuel Beckett in another unit, you may be familiar with the characterization of him as the last modernist. I just want to interrogate that for a moment. What do we mean when we call Beckett the last modernist? Well, I think one helpful way of understanding that is that the themes that we've seen being played out in the modernist text we've been looking at in this unit become hypertrophied, become exaggerated to the point of parody in Beckett. So for example, literary autonomy uh, reduces to a residual, seemingly inarticulate solipsism. Uh, purity, uh, the purity of high modernism, of Eliot's The Wasteland, or, or of some of Joyce's texts, the, the rigorous exclusion of the extra literary uh, becomes an ascetic minimalism. Think of the, uh, the set of Waiting for Godot, for example, with the one tree uh, and nothing else. The prophetic vision of modernism uh, becomes a, a form of negative theology, a, a desperate, burdensome absence of the divine, of the spiritual that weighs upon Beckett's characters. And so when we think of Beckett as the last modernist, one way that we might conceive of that is that Beckett's is a residual modernism. It is the, the footprint that's left when modernism has left the building. Uh, the, the presence of the absence of modernism, if you like. And this is how Mayhew puts it. Beckett uses the rubric residua 
of recollection of some of his shorter prose pieces. The idea of a kind of residual writing, a writing symbolically equivalent to the relics of the past civilization, is consonant with his elegiac mode. It could also be argued that late modernism is culturally residual, in the sense that Raymond Williams gives this term. And one version of this lecture would stop there. There we go, Beckett situated in relation to modernism. Here's residual. You're welcome, off you go. But of course, in the sort of way that I'm trying to get you to think about in relation to your essays, it, it isn't as simple as that. And the reason, it, one of the reasons it's not as simple as that is that modernism has always been residual. Here's Mayhew again. Uh, these questions, he says, become even more complicated if we remember that belatedness is the defining characteristic of literary modernity from its earliest moments. In three movements, William Butler Yeats expressed the sentiment that his own period, which we now call high modernism, was already a dim reflection of an earlier, more vital literature. Shakespearean fish swam in the sea, far away from land. Romantic fish swam in nets, coming to the hand. Where are all those fish that lie gasping on the strand? And so we turn to Trapp's last tape. And what we find telegraphed to us right from the opening lines, or from the opening stage directions, is precisely this residual nature, this worn out, exhausted cultural moment. Trapp, we learn, is a wearish old man. I mean, he's withered or shrunken. He's a residual person. He sits in his den, trying to record his impressions from the previous year, as he does apparently every year, on his birthday. Uh, but instead, he's drawn to listen again to a recording from his past, a memory that is called Farewell to Love. So right from the beginning, we find that he's lost in the past. Shakespearean fish swam in the sea for Yeats and Trapp's past swims before him. Uh, he's absorbed uh, in what was and is no more. Trapp is 69 and he's listening to a tape that he made at the age of 39, uh, at a moment when he renounced his chance of happiness. All possibility is gone, uh, isn't it? All hope has leaked away from his existence. He renounced his chance of happiness in order to realize the energy of his creative fire, uh, an energy that now he can only access in the mode of irony and mockery. Before we dive in to Crap's last tape, let me just say a couple of words about modernist uh, theatre. Uh, this is very schematic, there will be counterexamples, but here are some bullet points. Modernist theatre is theatre about theatre. It cannot but be aware of its own theatricality, its own mise-en-scene. Uh, 20th century experimental theatre militates, militates against the, the fourth wall against naturalism. You know, think about Godot again, that the characters speak to the audience directly. Uh, and in Crap as well, there's an acknowledgement, I think, in some of the stage directions um, that uh, we are there, the audience is there, that there's no pretense of a uh, suspension of disbelief. 20th century modernist theatre is about how character is formed, or indeed how character is not formed. So characters are not a given. They're pulled apart. Their component parts are examined through the dialogue rather than presenting us with, with fully formed characters on stage. 
one gets the sense in a certainly in a Beckett play and in a lot of 20th century experimental theatre that the actors on stage have a certain time and space to fill. Uh, they have to create a character from a script. Uh, they are given this task. So, so we, they're not. You know, this is not a Stanislavskian method where the person on stage really is the, the the person they're presenting. There's a distance between actor and character that is used and exploited uh, in this self-aware mode uh, of theatrical production and performance. T. S. Eliot puts it this way in relation to uh, poetry. Uh, he says the poet has not a personality to express, uh, but a particular medium, which is only a medium and not a personality, in which expressions and experiences, sorry, impressions and experiences combine in particular and unexpected ways. Poetry is not a turning loose of emotion, but an escape from emotion. It's not the expression of personality, but an escape from personality. But of course, only those who have personality and emotions know what it means to want to escape from these things. So then, when we talk about crap and when we talk about 20th century theatre in general, we use the usual words, plot, character and so forth, but we use them with a certain knowledge that we don't mean precisely what these things have traditionally meant. Uh, that we mean a self-aware, um, bracketed, suspended version of these things. Let's get into the play itself now. And I want to consider it under a number of headings with you. The first one is genre and form. Uh, and I want to think what it means and how to interpret the fact that this play is a monologue. Now, it's obviously a play that's laced with quotation with Crap quoting himself. It's laced with aping and adapting the high modernist signature device of interior monologue to exteriorizing that interior monologue, but also pushing at its limits and, and showing that the echoing emptiness of this, um, what, in, what in many modernist texts is this rich internal psychic landscape. I don't think Beckett allows us to be fascinated uh, by the richness of psychology in that way. I'd like to play for you now extracts from three monologues. Uh, the first is Molly Bloom's famous monologue from James Joyce's Ulysses. Uh, then I've got Lucky's monologue from um, Waiting for Goddard. Uh, and thirdly, I've got a, a monologue from Beckett's later play, Not I. And as you watch these, I want you to be thinking about this question. What is happening to the monologue in the progression from one of these to the other? What is happening to the monologue from the period of high modernism, characterized here by Joyce, to Beckett's earlier and later plays? What is Beckett doing to the monologue? God of heaven, there's nothing like nature, the wild mountain then the sea and the waves rushing, then the beautiful country with fields of oats and wheat and all kinds of things and all the fine cattle going about that would do your heart good to see. Rivers and lakes and flowers, all sorts of shapes and smells and colors springing up even out of the ditches, primroses and violets. Nature too. As for them saying there's no God, I wouldn't give a snap of my two fingers for all their learning. 
Why don't they go and create something? I often asked him, atheists or whatever they call themselves, go and wash the cobbles off themselves first, then they go holy for the priest made dying. And why, why? Because they're afraid of hell and account of their bad conscience. Ah, yes, I know them well. Who was the first person in the universe before there was anybody that made it all? Who? Ah, that they don't know. Neither do I, so there you are. They might as well try to stop the sun from rising tomorrow. The sun shines for you, he said, the day we were lying among the rhododendrons on Hoth Head. Given the existence as uttered forth in the public works of Puncher and Watman of a personal god, qua, 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 with white beard, qua, 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 outside time, Without extension, who from the heights of divine apathia, divine athambia, divine aphasia, loves us dearly, with some exceptions, for reasons unknown, but time will tell, and suffers like the divine Miranda with those who, for reasons unknown, but time will tell, are plunged in torment, Plunged in fire, whose fire flames, if that continues, and who can doubt it, will fire the firmament, that is to say, blast hell to heaven. So blue, still, and calm. So calm with a calm which, even though intermittent, is better than nothing, but not so fast. And considering what is more, that as a result of the labors left unfinished, crowned by the Academy of Anthropopometry of Essian Posse of Testu and Cunard, it is established beyond all doubt, all other doubt than that which clings to the labors of men, that as a result of the labors unfinished of Testu and Cunard, it is established as hereinafter, but not so fast, for reasons unknown, that as a result of the public works of Puncher and Watman, it is established beyond all doubt, that in view of the labors of Fartov and Belcher, left unfinished for reasons unknown, of Testu and Cunard, left unfinished, it is established what many deny, that man and posse of Testu and Cunard, that man in essay, that man in short, that man in brief, in spite of the strides of alimentation and defecation, is seen to waste and pine. speechless infant in home, no, out into this world, this world, tiny little thing before his time in a godfa, what, girl, yes, tiny little girl, into this, out into this, before her time, godforsaken hole, called, called, no matter, parents unknown, unheard of, he having vanished, thin air, no sooner button of his breeches, she similarly, eight months later, almost at the tick, so no love spared that, no love such as normally vented on the speechless infant in the home, no, nor indeed for that matter, any of any kind, no love of any kind, at any subsequent stage, so, typical affair, nothing of any note till coming up to sixty when, what, seventy, God, coming up to seventy when, wandering in a field, looking aimlessly for cowslips to make a ball, a few steps then stop, stare into space, then on, a few more, stop and stare again, so on, drifting around, when suddenly, gradually, all went out, all that early April morning light, and she found herself in the... What? Who? No! She! A 
found herself in the dark, and not exactly insentient, insentient, for she could still hear the buzzing, so-called, in the ears, and a ray of light came and went, came and went, such as the moon might cast, drifting in and out of cloud, but so dulled, feeling, feeling so dulled, she did not know what position she was in. Imagine what position she was in, whether standing or sitting, but the bray, what? Kneeling, yes, whether standing or sitting or kneeling, but the bray, what? Lying, yes, whether standing or sitting or kneeling. I wonder what you made of those three clips. Of course, there are lots of different answers to the question, what is happening to the monologue here? One thing that I wanted to draw out is that the, the idea of an interior world that's being exteriorized in uh, the, the, the genre of monologue is, is degrading before our eyes. Uh, Molly Bloom still has a sense of a of coherent psychic world it, it, it's decentered it's fragmented of course but but there's still a there's still a molly bloom who we can refer to as a psychic entity and um, already in lucky what we've got is just more more of a fragmented conglomeration of quotations picked out of the cultural ether something like sasha was talking about in relation to voyage in the dark more than a coherent interior stream of consciousness and then with not i you go even further down that same Road, you don't even have now that the corporeal integrity um, of a, a, a body that minimally grounds this language in some sort of locus in place. All you've got is the, the language coming out of a pair of disembodied lips floating in the air. Who, who's speaking? What does it matter? Who knows? The, the idea of, of the monologue is being pulled apart before our eyes. And what we see in crap is one moment of this happening. The crap is being pulled apart by the technology he's using. His psyche is being fragmented in a way that will take Beckett eventually to not I, uh, that he, he uh, wrote in 1973. The second theme I want to explore in relation to Crap's last tape with you is the theme of memory. I'd like to read you a quotation and I want you to try and tell me, don't Google it, there's no marks available and there's no point. Um, but I want you, as I read it, to just try and tell me who you think this is. Uh, memory is like a great field or a spacious palace, uh, a storehouse for countless images of all kinds which are conveyed to it by the senses. When I use my memory, I ask it to produce whatever it is that I wish it to remember. Some things it produces immediately and some are forthcoming only after a delay as though they were being brought out of some inner hiding place. Others come spilling from the memory, thrusting themselves upon us, when what we want is something quite different. These I brush aside from the picture which memory presents to me, allowing my mind to pick what it chooses until finally that which I wish to see stands out clearly and emerges into sight from its hiding place. And as their place is taken, they return to their place of storage, ready to emerge again when I want them. Well, it could be a description of Crap's study, couldn't it? With the spools of tape all around. It's actually a quotation from Augustine's Confessions, uh, written in the fourth century AD. Um, and I draw attention to it because it, it links the, the technology 
in Crap's last tape, two abiding theories of memory. What, what is it to remember something? What is going on when we reach back into the past uh, and bring uh, an event in our memories into the present? And this is a lot of what is at stake in Crap's last take. Um, Crap is exploring and exteriorizing theories of time. Uh, memory structures time, doesn't it? One, one, if one had no memory, one wouldn't know that time had passed. Uh, and so to, to explore memory is to explore time itself, as both Augustine and Beckett are doing. Uh, and Beckett is doing that through this motif of the technology, uh, of the tape and the recordings. And think about the end of the play in relation to this, that incredibly poignant end, in my opinion, uh, where memory actually drowns out the present. It's the old crap who plays us out. Uh, the new crap is silent, utterly lost uh, in the cyclical return of the past. Uh, Malkin puts it this way, Crap will finally forego the attempt to record his immediate impressions and allow the voice of the past to speak instead. The voice of memory will prove stronger than Crap's own. And what a vivid picture uh, of the bankruptcy and exhaustion of a present uh, that can only put the past on hard repeat. Let me ask you a question. How do you think you'll look back on this year, 20 or 40 years from now? Uh, what would today's spool be if you were into recording spools? If you keep a diary, what did you write in your diary this morning? And how do you relate to what you wrote two, three, four years ago? Do you look back to a golden age of childhood when things were perhaps easier or happier? Or do you feel yourself forging forward, uh, growing uh, ever more powerful or, or, or whatever it is that, that you value in the world uh, as time goes by? And these are all also themes that are played out in Crap's last tape for us. So, so on the one hand, there are these grand philosophical conundra uh, of what is time, what is memory. Uh, but it's also a very intimate play. It's a play that I think we can all relate to. Whether or not we keep a diary, whether or not we record an audio diary like Crap does, we, we all look back to the past and we all have some opinion of our past selves, whether it's positive, negative, neutral or something else. And, and this play, does it not, gives us an opportunity to explore our own memory, our own past, uh, through this exteriorizing, this making visible of the structure of memory uh, in Crap's tapes. Now, in the next thing I'm going to say, I'm going to go out on a limb. I haven't seen this written in any of the secondary literature on Crap, but I think it is of absolutely key importance. I, it is key to my interpretation of the play, and I, I commend it to your consideration. Uh, part of the stage directions at the beginning of the play say three incredibly important words, in the future. Now, I have no idea why critics tend not to pick up on this, but for me, it changes the play utterly. So what we are looking at is a, a future projection. Uh, this is not crap now, looking back on 30 years ago, it is a future crap looking on now. And so if, if you like, the, 
the play is written in the future anterior, how it will have been, not how it is now. This is how a future crap will have looked back on his past, which is our present. Now, exactly what that means for the play's understanding of time, I'm not completely sure. Uh, whether it bespeaks some sense of crushing fatality and inevitability. Perhaps what it says is that this is how we think we will look back on the past. Um, this is what we conceive memory to be. Uh, perhaps it, it gives the player a sort of flavour of prophecy, um, saying this, this is how things will have turned out if we give them time. Um, as I say, I, I don't know what to do with that, but for me, that is unavoidable as, as a key hermeneutic element in trying to come to terms with, with what this play means. In relation to Crap himself, I think it causes us to ask the question, does he know that this is how it will end? Uh, is this his fear of how things will turn out? Or is this the sad and dreary inevitability uh, of what he knows his life will have amounted to in the end. Here's another question for you. How would you describe the passing of time in the play if you had to use an image to talk about time in this play? How would you talk about it? Well, Beckett describes it as decanting a liquid. Uh, this is what he, he says in his book uh, on Proust. He says, the individual is the seat of a constant process of decantation decantation from the vessel containing the fluid of future time, sluggish, pale, and monochrome, to the vessel containing the fluid of past time, agitated and multicolored by the phenomena of its hours. It's an image, isn't it, that, that evokes decay. Uh, if we can imagine the future as a beautifully clear liquid, perhaps with a little sediment at the bottom, and then as we uh, move uh, into the future from the past, it becomes cloudy, uh, it becomes opaque. Now, we might be tempted to think of time in the opposite way, that the past is clear, we know what happened then, uh, and the future is totally opaque, we've no idea what it will bring. Uh, but Beckett sees it the other way around. Uh, there's a brilliant lucidity to the future uh, that is besmirched uh, and muddied and clouded uh, in the past. Uh, again, it's, uh, uh, it, it's an image of of exhaustion and decay, all that we've got to look forward to uh, is, is a gradual disordering, um, a gradual grinding down. Another important aspect to bear in mind in relation to time in Beckett and Gemmell and in Crap in particular is that the, the agony is, is not that things come to an end. Uh, the agony uh, in terms of sort of the, the agony of, of, of death, of dying, is that there's an impossibility of things coming to an end. If things finished, then at least something would have happened. There would be an event. Uh, but in so much of his writing, Beckett denies us that catharsis, that finality of an event. It's summed up perhaps nowhere more powerfully than in the opening lines of, of his play Fin de Partie, Endgame, in English, uh, where we have Grain upon grain, 
one by one, and one day suddenly there's a heap, a little heap, the impossible heap. One gets the sense that an ending uh, would at least put the characters in Endgame out of their misery, uh, but Beckett denies them that pleasure. And he denies us that pleasure, doesn't he, as well, in the very title of Crap's last tape. In French, it's La Dernière Bonde. And last in English and Dernière in French can both mean last as in final, ultimate, but also the one previous to now, uh, the one closest to now uh, in time. And so we don't know, is this is this Crap's last tape in, t in terms of being his ultimate tape, or is it simply the last one that he made? Uh, there's no sense uh, of inevitable closure uh, even in uh, this affirmation that it's the last. I'd like now to think with you about the relationship in the play between memory and selfhood. One thing I think that Beckett is exploring uh, through the conceit of Crap's last tape is Crap's desire for and inability to achieve self-coincidence. Crap uh, is always split in time, making comments on himself, laughing at himself, uh, even his past self laughing at his present. Um, he's never unified uh, psychically. Uh, he's always split between the presence and the past. There are literally multiple voices in this play, and to the point where it, it's doubtful that, that, we, that we can really call it a monologue at all. But there's also something else going on in the relation of the present to the past crap. It's almost, would you agree, an auto-eroticism of memory, a self-pleasuring mirrored in this lewd act with the bananas at the beginning of the play, and also in his fetishizing of the recording equipment, his, his delectation of the word spool uh, as he caresses uh, the, the recorder. There's a pain associated with memory in this play, uh, but it isn't always an unpleasant pain, uh, and it isn't the only way of relating to the past. Uh, there's desire mixed in with this as well, perhaps desire for recovery, but also desire for repetition, uh, desire to replay the past quite literally. And another important aspect of identity in the play is, is that Crap's identity is always mediated. It, it's always mediated through the technology of the recording equipment. He, he can't find out who he is, he can't know who he is, apart from in this indirect, broken way. Uh, he needs to go via the tape recorder uh, to encounter himself. And it's interesting to reflect on the extent to which that dynamic of only being able to encounter ourselves through the mediation of technology has become ever more ubiquitous since the time that Beckett wrote Crap. Uh, the way, for example, that we mediate ourselves to ourselves and understand ourselves through social media accounts, to take one example, today I think could be viewed as an extrapolation and an intensification of the technologically mediated selfhood that Crap is exploring in this play. 
And one disconcerting aspect, I think, of the interplay between the, the, the crap who is seated on stage and the crap who we hear on tape is that it's not a one-way conversation. It's not that simply that the present crap is commenting on what's on the tape. Um, and uh, this is pointed out by um, Michael Wharton, it is, I think, in, in The Cambridge Companion, uh, where he writes, yet at the end of the play, the taped voice of his younger self seems almost to be mocking crap. We see the old man, quote, drowned in dreams and burning to be gone. And we hear the voice from 30 years before saying, quote, perhaps my best years are gone when there was a chance of happiness, but I wouldn't want them back. Not with the fire in me now. No, I wouldn't want them back. There's an uncanny ability for the past crap to comment on and belittle the present crap, to frame the present crap uh, in a way uh, that the present crap is seeking to do uh, with the tapes as well. It's almost as if there's a battle between them uh, to be the interpretative key for the other. And perhaps what we see then in this battle, in this technologically mediated um, fracturing of identity, uh, is a harbinger of what was to become uh, habitual and acute in postmodern explorations of identity. Again, uh, Wharton says, the, the tape recorder is necessary for crap, but it serves ultimately to confirm precisely the split in identity, which it was meant to close. And this idea of identity is open up and opening up and fracturing and being unable to, to reconcile uh, is for those of you who have done um, the unit on postmodern literature will know is, is all over postmodern texts. Another aspect of this technology that's at the centre of this play is that it commodifies memory for, for us. If we think of um, what Sasha was saying about Reese in the last two weeks and the way in which fragments of advertising jingles are incorporated into Anna's stream of consciousness, uh, we, we see uh, an objective correlative here of, of, of that feature uh, of the psyche in this, uh, in this tape recorder. Malkin puts it this way, in Crap, memory is imagined as a large, two-spooled, double-lobed tape recorder. This choice of metaphor, a mechanical material box, presupposes and shapes the way we view the memory function, and thus the self in Crap. It also entails a set of concepts and dramatic moves, mechanistic, dualistic, basically still mimetic, which I will claim are no longer relevant in Not I. Remember, that's the, uh, the play with just the lips going like the clappers. Uh, memory in a box means memory localised, thrillingly present within a concrete material form no longer elusive or diffuse. Memory seems self-contained, redeemable, depending for its use on finding the right reel, twisting the right levers, locating the desired section of tape. But of course, I think this just makes it all the more agonizing uh, and evoking of pathos when Crap is unable to close that gap between his present and past sense. The technology gestures towards making this possible 
uh, but just accentuates the, the pain of the impossibility of coinciding with one's past self. This eroticism is, is really foregrounded both in the text of the play and in the stage directions. And, and this is uh, brought out um, again in the Cambridge Companion where we read, and this is where the irony lies. For as we listen to this taped moment, what we see amounts to a near parody of the scene. Uh, lie down across her, Crap says. Now Crap instructs himself as he replays the episode. And in his pool of light, he bends over the tape machine, his hand on it. Now, become as much as possible one with the machine, Beckett advised the actor Pierre Chabert. It's a poignant instruction. For the broken crap, his machine, with its reassuring bulk and its twin revolving spools, has become a maternal erotic substitute. Spool coos crap early in the play, with a sucking infantile relish. One thing that's happened here, and I think it's absolutely brilliant in the way that Beckett has constructed this play, is that the desire for coincidence with the self that mediation purportedly makes possible has actually transformed into a desire for the means of mediation itself. So Beckett no longer wants his past self. He, he wants the mediation, the means has become the end. The tape recorder that unites him with the past has become that with which he wants now to be united. And that is another typically postmodern move, a fascination, if one likes, with, with the journey rather than the destination, a holding of oneself in the mediation in a way that substitutes for whatever the mediation was supposed to be uh, uniting us with in the first place. And so we reach the end of this course on literary modernism, the end of this lecture. And what we find is that modernism ends, to use Eliot's language from the wasteland, not with a bang, uh, as it started, uh, with the raw, visceral energy of Dada uh, in the immediate post-First World War period. It ends not in that way, but with a whimper, uh, with a long sigh of exhaustion, uh, as Beckett explores uh, the last twitching moments um, of the corpse that refuses to die, uh, which is modernism as it remains uh, in his plays. <laughs>